It's World Cup time, or as they say in countries that care about soccer, Mondial. That means Liel is probably upset about some loss or tie or something. He might swear this week, so you want to send swearing-averse people out of the room. This has been your obscenity warning. So they wrote, they wrote <laughs> relentlessly about the royal family, but using these other names, and it slipped into common parlance. If you say, oh, did you see Brenda on the telly last night? People know. It's like, <laughs> it's that... That English refusal to defer. So, you know, when Madonna goes to live in England, they're not calling her Madonna. They call her Madge. If you've got pretensions, they'll knock you down a bit. It's very healthy. I was born the year Brenda ascended to the throne, (laughs) 1952. Um, So I do feel a connection with Brenda because if ever I want to know how old I am, I just have... How many years? As old as as Brenda's brain. Yeah. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And Senior Writer Liel Leibowitz. Go! Go, 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 Is there a sporting event going on? This week, African-American Jewish Southern food historian Michael Twitty, who is among the people our listeners want us to have on the show. It's like the the West Wing Weekly guys we've had. And our hosts want us to have on the show, too. Michael Twitty has been on the list for so long, and finally... It's going to happen. We literally slid into his DMs we, on Twitter. Yep, we made it happen. And also we'll chat quickly with Molly Gay, longtime friend of the show, former guest, whose new show, Girl Meets Farm, debuts this week on the Food Network. Also, it is it is World Cup. So we welcome fashionista Simon Doonan, whose new book is Soccer Style, The Magic and the Madness. What a good show. The, the, well done, us. Well, <laughs> pat on our, on our white t-shirted post-Memorial Day backs. Um... Jews, what what is up, Liel? What's up in Liel Land? Um, seven hours of soccer <laughs> a day. Liel was supposed to edit something I wrote recently. He's like, sorry, it's been five it's hours like a day. <laughs> it's been five hours a day of soccer. I'm a little behind on other. I'll things. get it in five weeks. But apparently, it's up to seven hours a day of soccer. Well, there's a lot because then you also want to watch a commentary. You want to watch right. replays of some of your favorite plays. It's a it's a big commitment. Um, we uh, finally figured out we don't have cable, so we finally figured out for Rebecca, who's soccer obsessed, as we know. How to get it? And of course, the answer is we have my father's cable password. So you because know, he so pays for cable. Really, you never really. So I was like, the nest. right? I was like, look, we're getting plus. Get- you never really pay for TV. <laughs> that like, way, look, you don't pay for movies. We're gonna we're gonna get soccer the same way we get HBO. We're gonna ask Grandpa to remind us what his password is. I definitely steal like I steal Showtime from the Coens. And I think HBO from the Buttonics. From your in-laws, no less. Well, I think well, I couldn't. I think I couldn't remember. I couldn't get into my parents, and then so I was like, "Ben, find your parents." But I, but I still acknowledge, like, I think you should not be on your parents. Like, I, love, I feel like I at some point I'll get my oh, own. Oh, because I'm more. You're not there yet. You like have a family. You're married, Stephanie. No, you I understand. But I, like at some point I'll get it. <laughs> Wouldn't work for me. The stealing from the in-laws, insofar as my father-in-law is still on AOL. <laughs> so where there's there's, I think he still has dial-up. Anyway, back to you. Uh, to uh, to offset. This this massive uh, you know coma inducing intake of soccer on Thursday, I uh, sauntered over to the Jewish Museum to see our very own Stefani Butnik uh, moderate a rocking discussion about about this was Rachel Kadish and history and Lisa Moses left. It was Lisa actually really fun. It was my first time doing that series. Erica Dreyfus, our our super listener, was there, and she she came up to me and she's like, "Is Grandpa Al here?" And I said, "Yes, yes, he oh is." My God. Why don't you go up to him and say? Are you Grandpa Al? <laughs> and he did. And then I said, well, before we started, I was like, guys, I'm like, I'm not done with it being my grandma's birthday. I was like, it's my grandma's birthday today. And we like threw this party for her. Did you all and say And everyone birthday? started cheering for her. And yeah. I was like, guys, we're good. 
<laughs> we got Graham, the, the, the room was full sighting. because there were 38 people related to Stephanie <laughs> sitting in the first seven it rows. It is nice, though, like now that I have in-laws, there's double as many people who are like contractually obligated to come to every event I do in the tri-state area. But my parents honestly, barely showed up for my wedding. Um, <laughs> like if I win the Nobel Prize, my mom would be, that's nice. Oh, that's the day of the bar mitzvah I need to go to in Jerusalem. So <laughs> send a picture. But, you know, so. On the other hand, all of us would have an elderly aunt or uncle who added your name to the email about how many Jews win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> exactly. so that, would, that would be great. But the best thing was that we had some listeners who were in town from Toronto. Awesome. Toronto. Um, it was Tanya, Tanya and her husband. And they came out to me after and they were like, we were in town and we just like figured we'd come by. And I, then I was like, you know, Liel is right over there. And they were like, <laughs> no. And Liel came over. So it's pretty wild. Speaking- but I think I want to say, I'm going to put in a pitch for Rachel's book. It's a really nice, a nice meaty novel. That could be one of our one of our book club books not our next one because it is also over 500 pages and I want to give people like a little break mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but one day we'll do it Rachel Kadish what's yeah, the book called again? The Weight of Ink it's very good our next good. book will be a picture book <laughs> yeah please 17 <laughs> illustrated pages and 38 words I have a lot of news of of, of the mark this week um, first of all Shut down the Facebook account. Like, as you know, you might have seen, I put out a, a final post. I said, You're a hero. Going out tonight at midnight. I actually didn't um, catch your final post. <laughs> it said, I'm going out tonight at midnight. Is it on the Facebook group? Um, Is it not on, not anymore. I, I think I've been vanquished. I think they expunge you. I think I'm not even, you know, like when we when I went off Facebook, we lost our, our, our background photo for the unorthodox Facebook page because it had been somehow linked like to you me. You like took the house with you. Yeah, you basically, I took the house. I pulled I pulled the light, turned you the did, lights you out. You did the real left. Jerry Maguire on Facebook. <laughs> the good news Who's is that there are still five Mark Oppenheimers on Facebook. What? Yeah, one oh, is gosh. an endocrinologist. Yes, he's all, I think he's from South Dakota. Oppenheimer, he's the, yeah, the Oppenheimer Scrabble player. Endocrinology. Can the, we just add him? Oh, and then there's the, Mark the Oppenheimer group? photography. There's a guy who's a headhunter, I think. Yeah, we know, I mean, we yeah, know. Yeah, there's, there's, anyway, those four, <laughs> I got a beef with them. Um, so so that happened, which is I am now social media free, which means, by the way, listeners, that I still want to hear from you, just, you know, Moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. One of the nice things about going on Facebook was a f- three old friends wrote me an email. It's like, but 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 how are we going to stay in touch? The like, antiquated technology the, the, that if only ant- there was a way if only there was a way uh so that was pretty that was pretty great and i've read like two novels in the time since it's just been amazing look at that the, but the other thing that happened you'll be speaking french the, by next week i'm gonna call you and speak perfect hebrew in about three weeks and you'll be like cousin <laughs> shlomo <laughs> that's what i've been doing since i went off facebook so um a couple other things. One, uh, my mom threw a beautiful bridal shower for my sister. And so we went up Rachel. to Springfield. And uh, lots of – all the c- cousins were there, my mom's cousins and friends. Juanita was there. JP was there. Denise, Betsy, all the old – the old – you know who our, my mom's gang is? It's the women whom she was in the, the the daycare co-op with when we were little in Springfield, Mass. It's the Western Mass child the, care the co-op. The OGs. Yeah, the, those are the OGs. And they were there. And then the men, we all went up. We, we did a man thing. We went to Northampton and had lunch. Lunch and uh, to clear out of the space. You did a man thing. Uh, we I, had iced teas. <laughs> we did. Some of them were sweetened. So that was fun. Um, but then the other thing was Thread, the conference that I run at Yale, the storytelling conference happened. And Tuesday night, we have this amazing event where um, Catherine Burns does this from the moth, does this storytelling type uh, stuff. And um, at halftime, an unorthodox listener, Lisa Kanef from Washington, D.C. She's a super listener. She's written to us. She's great. She came up to me and she's like, look, I'm going to have to bail on the second half of this event. And I was like, but this is one of our great events. What you can't, this is amazing. And it was amazing. It was really uh, an astonishing event that Catherine was putting on with her associate producer, Jody Powell, who's also amazing. And I was like, you, you have to be back for the second 
the second act. And she's like, but I got a J-swipe date. I made a J-swipe match. And, I was, and she's like, and we're supposed to meet in half an hour, 10 o'clock at this, I don't know if they're going to a bar, restaurant, New Haven, whatever. And I was like, all right, let me see him. So we're milling around at the intermission and she pulls out her, her phone. She shows me like, that's a handsome Jew. You have a heck shirt. You, for, like, I give you a pass. Like, go, go, skip out on the next hour. So she goes. And when it's all over, um, she she emails me. and was like, it went really well. And, you know, thank you. And that was great. And I hope to see him again. And they're texting the next day and we stay in touch. And two days later, she sends me the text that he sent her, which was one of those like, I'm just not ready for a relationship at this point in time. And Meanwhile, the guy is a late 30s rabbi, single rabbi in his late 30s who doesn't have time for a relationship. It's like he is literally all that's wrong with you. You know who you are, rabbi out there, by the way, who who went on one date with Lisa Kane. And, and rabbi's mother. Yeah, you are you are what's wrong with Judaism, pal. Meanwhile, Lisa's <laughs> doing great. We've been corresponding and she's like, look, you and I said, can I tell people that you are a super catch? I mean, she is there's she is a 10 in every respect and 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 an amazing human and an unorthodox listener so bright so interesting and uh she's in washington i think i think people should reach out to lisa by the way what a great sitcom this would be about the commitment phobic rabbi rabbi yeah this is like those weddings every weekend (laughs) and it's just like not for me not for me mcconaughey yes i'm i'm on j swipe i'm going on dates moving but not really. So I feel like we could figure out who he is pretty quickly, but we won't. But we won't. But um, you know, but our but, listeners can. Our listeners can. And meanwhile, Lisa, ask yourself: Is he a rabbi? <laughs> anyway, uh, news of Jews other than than ourselves and our friends. Um, uh, Stephanie, what you got? Well, first of all, I don't know if you guys saw, but Drake's mom was caught on TMZ saying <laughs> saying like, because <laughs> Drake's obviously embroiled in like seventeen different rap feuds right, right now, and he's losing all of them. Um, poor guy. And he, <laughs> TMZ was basically like, "What do you think about your son's rap battles?" And she was like, "It should stop." I <laughs> said something just like, "I think it's stupid," um, which was amazing. But my main my main bit this week is that uh, Natalie Portman. Our all-star Jewess. I'll call her Jewess. She's a Wes. No one else. She was on Colbert this week, and she he basically was trying to steer the like he was very clearly trying to steer the conversation towards Jared Kushner. He's like, "Well, you're smart. You play a lot of smart roles, and you went to Harvard." And she's like, "Yep." And he's like, "And you were there with Jared Kushner?" And she's like, "Right." And he was like, "Was he a good student? <laughs> is it true he was a not a great student?" And she says, "That is." true <laughs> <laughs> and then he says like well what's yeah. like give us give me the dirt and she basically has this great line where she's like i don't know unfortunately it's not very there's not a lot not a lot to tell. funny to say about someone you were friends with becoming a super villain so you know mm. and she was at their wedding i mean they if were like one friendly person on earth could make me like jared kushner it's Natalie Portman. <laughs> that is your take your, your so Natalie Portman facility like, you know what, jared? just getting in the way of our friendship jared, if i had to spend 24 hours uh, on a remote island with one of these two Jews, it's not Natalie Portman. That's that's the stupidest that, thing you've that, ever said. I would sit with Jared thing. and, and yeah. nod politely and say absolutely you nothing. Would, you wouldn't just want to talk Star Wars trivia with Natalie Portman, given no, who you are? because speaking of being super villains, she completely ruined the series. Oh, she ruined it. It's yeah, her no, fault? You know what? Well, it's her fault. You know what, Liel? Revisionist history. What's your news of the Jews this I week, Liel? her. Redeem you know yourself. What? You know what my news of the Jews yeah, is? Yeah, what's your news? Only the greatest news of the Jews item ever. Okay, what's that? What's that? You know who's back? I think we write. We need the back and black. Your mother, like, then stand it in, stand it in. Ari, mother effing Nagel, the sperm <laughs> literally, 
himself, oh. the king of the Target bathroom. Oh, gross. The father of 42 children. 42 children? He's like, he's like a biblical whatever. <laughs> now, wait a second. For our listeners who it's may have patriarch. joined us in the last three or four months since we last talked about Ari Nagel, tell them who Ari Nagel is, Liel. So Ari Nagel, so he is 42. He's the father of 33 children right. uh, who were conceived via sperm donations, most of whom handed in plastic cups at Target uh, bathrooms. Right. The, the old-fashioned, the there, romantic old-fashioned There are these great New York Post stories about this guy who basically is the number one sperm donor in the tri-state area. Oh, uh, on Earth? On I Earth. I believe. And he's taking a show international now, right? Yeah, so him, what's, what's We've the had news? him on the show. I know, yeah. I regret that. <laughs> I regret giving him a platform. Stephanie has- That anyone could have found out about him has, from our has show. showered uh, many times since- <laughs> To, to get that off I regret her. nothing I regret nothing um, so Ari Nagel is taking the show on the road he's like you know what's what's good is having 33 kids in America you know what's great <laughs> if you're Jewish and like the Zionist let's go populate the Jewish state let's go make kids in Israel but but there is a big but the big but is that in Israel the law says uh, according to the Ministry of Health you have to be anonymous to be a sperm donor. Now, Ari Nagel is not about that. <laughs> Ari Nagel is a brand, right? Ari Nagel is the Jared Kushner of sperm donations. <laughs> he needs his name right there on the... Uh, and so the ministry said, well, if you're going to be known, you have to co-parent. And clearly, you can't co-parent a whole brood of 47 children. kids. And so you're, you're barred from donating sperm. Says Ari Nagel, fake news. I could co-parent every single one of my children. <laughs> Isn't he I'm like a, a teacher who probably has lost his job I'm since this happened? I'm a biblical patriarch. So here's the craziest thing. He basically free, free like Ari is a what woman I say. contacted him and was like, come here, like let's, whatever. What are the odds the Israeli woman who contacted him did it because she heard about a, through <laughs> our show? I, really I like to not. think we have a piece of this So basically story. he went to like the clinic to do it. So he did it in a proper clinic and he said before he even left, they were like, I'm sorry, we're he only did it in a proper clinic because we don't have Target in it. <laughs> <laughs> it would be like the shawarma stand. <laughs> Like uh, Sonic, but basically, he, they like they were, they informed him. They're like, we disposed of your sample, and you are not allowed to like to just donate here. And he's like, they must have known my name before I came. <laughs> and you know, part of this, like, he likes he his loves notoriety. It. He loves it even more than he likes his bizarre hobby of, <laughs> you know, impregnating women. Yeah. And he's oh, like, well, Ari. all right. There's a shawarma stand in the shuk. I'll see you over there. Yeah, no right of return for him. <laughs> you know what? I, I think in the interest of Jewish continuity, it behooves us <laughs> to make an exception. Set Ari free. Um, do I even, how do I even follow that? I mean, what I, I was going to say I for news, you can. I, well, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. That is, that is, I mean, this is all peak news of the Jews, but I just, a little late in the game, I don't want to let another episode of this show go by without giving a shout out to all of the Jewish women who won primaries a couple weeks ago. Um, we have a spate of Jewish women who are going to be representing, uh, as it happens, the Democratic Party, but I would be loving Jewish women in the Republican Party as well. Come November, Jackie Rosen is going to be the Senate candidate in Nevada, opposing Dean Heller. Um, Unsure about Abigail Spanberger in uh, we'll take her. in Richmond. If anyone knows, if 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 I'm going to call her Abby, if Abby Spanberger in Richmond is is a is a Jewess, uh, let us know because um, you know the name could be. I looked at her. I don't know, could Span's be. not kosher. Well, but it's Span with an N. Yeah. So th there we go. And but but here's here's the one you got to love, right? Her colleague in Richmond. This this one is from Norfolk. Is Elaine Luria, and this I just want to read from her internet bio. When her peers were heading off to college, Elaine was compelled to be part of something bigger than herself and joined the Navy at 17. 
can you even do that? I, I thought that like she faking her parents' signature, so she could give back <laughs> and help build a safer, stronger, and fairer society for this generation and the next. Elaine served for twenty years as a surface warfare officer and nuclear engineer, deploying six times, twice forward deployed on ships stationed in Japan, conducting operations in the Middle East and Western Pacific on destroyers, cruisers, and aircraft carriers. She's a member of Ohef Shalom Temple in Norfolk, Virginia. That's what we were waiting ah. for. <laughs> this, by the way, may be a good. Uh, Chance to announce that I I may have to leave the show soon. Uh oh, for your run for Knesset? No, we have Space Force now, and I think that is pretty much where my calling goes. I think if Space Force is a thing, I want to be a career officer in Space Force. What's Space Force? You, well, you're not on Facebook, so you're not following the news. Uh, our 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 president announced the other day that it is not enough for us to have the existing branches of Army, Navy, Air Force, etc. We need oh, we have space, space force, force <laughs> to fight in space. And I've been training for this, Mark, since I was seven. <laughs> I am ready for Space Force. You know, it's all going to be a bunch of like whacked out IDF yeah. guys being like, eh, Mars. Where is Elon Musk? Uh, Fauda on the it's, planet is what we're going to do. We're going to pretend to be the alien and then uh, kidnap the alien. Well, I'm wishing you the best of luck. With yeah, that. it's going to be you and 12 year old boys who have read Ready Player One. That's exactly right. <laughs> or have seen it. Or have seen Even it. Worse. I'm a space Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. All right, we have a super special uh, Jewish guest this week. Michael Twitty is a writer and historian of food culture. His book, The Cooking Gene, traced the roots of his ancestors through the Old South, following a food journey that took him through the stories of slavery and back to the recipes of Africa. Michael Twitty, welcome to the show. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Okay, or. <laughs> yes. And As they say in D.C. <laughs> As they say in Hebrew school for 14 years, <laughs> I used to be a teacher of. <laughs> um, my, my takeaway from Hebrew school was, Ani rotsaglida. Ani <laughs> ice cream. You're not the first, you're, you're like you're the 80s person to say this, to be like, I only learned how to say ice cream when he, I want some ice Why cream Why were we Hebrew? always talking about ice cream? It doesn't make any sense. Because we're Jews and we always talk about food. About food, So yeah. speaking of food, Michael, you your book won two James Beard Awards, which is like yes, the most honey. legit thing in the entire world for food writing and for food in general. What what was it like? You won best best food writing and best book. And was, well, and was there a red carpet? I mean, what is the James Beard? Yeah, there was. Like? And I was and I was in complete kente cloth. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I was, I was given it. Mm. And um, I did have a keep on my back pocket. And when I actually won, the only award that I knew I was going was gonna to compete for was best writing. And that was a long, for me, that felt like a long shot because I was up against two very strong books. And uh, one already won ISCP, you know, a National Association of Culinary Professionals Award. And when I got up there, I was shocked. I was, you know, literally clutching, um, clutching the pearls. And the first thing I did was I, I, I made a bracha. I said, Shehekianu. 
And I think a lot of people in the, in the audience who did not know me or didn't know my work were kind of taken aback. Why is it? Because I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm self-representing as Jewish. And for me, it was a very important moment because I always have in my food and writing career. And when we tried to market this book, which is one of a trilogy about food and identity and myself, and, and just not about me, but opening up those doors, I, I made a point of saying, and I knew the people in the audience I knew there were people in the audience who actually said these words to me. One publisher was like, you can't be Jewish and do this book. can't be openly Jewish. You can't wear a kippah in public. Um, we don't want you to, we want you to be in that black bubble. We want to sell this as a black book. We don't want to sell it as a black Jewish gay guy book. And I'm like, well, that's what you're going to get. <laughs> and um, the woman actually said to me, America's not ready for you. And I'm like, America is the only place where I'm possible. So how, how dare you tell me that America's not ready for me? And so um, here I am, keep on all, all my rainbow clips because it's Pride Month. And, um, you know, I'm very pleased that I have my integrity intact. So you talk a lot about culinary justice and identity cooking in your work. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about what that means? Well, it comes, it really does come right out of the sort of intersection of being Black and Jewish and gay and Southern and all of the above, um, which seems like a lot, but the reality is, Every single one of us post fourteen ninety two is intersectional. Um, there's just no way around that. I mean, we act like it's like it's a surprise. Like intersectional is not the trans, um, um, differently abled black lesbian rabbi of your dreams. No, intersectional is like every single one of us living our lives at the crossroads of multiple identities and geographic and and human spaces and landscapes. So for me, um, kind of snipping out the academies. Um, I was introduced to a social justice mindset through Judaism and through Jewish culture. And so that, that really started to affect everything that I did. It kind of merged with the moral suasion of civil rights. So for me, culinary justice is about the civil rights tradition married with the social justice tradition and just looking at it from the perspective of that culinary ideas and practices and culture are a really deep and important way of surviving your oppression. There's one thing Blacks, gays, and Jews are really good at is coming up with really marketable ways that we survive oppression. And um, that form of survival is our greatest form of cultural capital. I don't care if it's food. I don't care if it's dance. It's religion. I don't care if it's drag. We come up with ways to survive and overcome. Speaking of, of surviving and overcoming, you have a phrase that that I love the enslaved enslaved the palate of those who enslaved them. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? It means that, particularly for Southern whites, there's this, there's this media, popular media image of whites and blacks being on opposite sides of the street, never the twain shall meet. And it's kind of like Jim Crow aesthetic and, and division. But nobody is more African than the Southern white man and woman of those who are outside of blackness, you know, in America. I mean, it, it's, it seems to me after going to the UK, after going to Northern Europe, after going to West Africa, they have far more in common with the West Africans than they do with the Northern Europeans. Run around on Ancestry on TV talking about, I used to wear a later hose and now I wear a kilt. No, you need to wear some kente cloth because your roots are in West Africa, your food, your culture. And you see, you don't know, it, when we talk about Southern, people who are not from the South don't, don't pick up on all this. But then when you go to West Africa and you see, like the gestures, the body language, the food, the musical culture, and how that's affected 
you know, the culture of everybody, not just white and black Southerners, but I may as well you know, be in so Mississippi. That, yeah, across this across the spectrum, everybody has that part of that African culture and identity in them. And if to you know get to your point of your question, I mean, around the world, everybody has had an enslaved ancestor. There's just no way around having people who were peasants or enslaved or indentured servants in your family. That's just the way of the world. But in the history of the world, can you name one other pop, major population of enslaved people that didn't that didn't just sit in the culture they were enslaved by and become part of them, but essentially maintained a huge part of their identity and then rocked that culture to the point where, well, even that word rock, right? The soundtrack of the world is rock, is hip-hop, is... Is, is club music, is 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 salsa, merengue. The, the soundtrack of the world is the music created by the enslaved. And the menu of America is essentially the menu created by the enslaved. So where do the Jews fit into this, uh, into the smorgasbord? Everywhere. And that's the, that's the next book, actually, is my engagement with Jewish food and my own personal um, Jewish journey and as a teacher, as a learner, with Jewish learning, with Jewish food, all of that. Um, but I, you know, I challenged an audience recently in uh, Boston. I said, you know, I saw a pic, I saw this amazing um, painting um, of the ghetto of Lisbon, and it's all Jews and blacks who were living in. And I don't mean to separate the two because do that kind of commentary thing. Ugh, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's it's. It's, uh, it's, it's a mixture of people. And I said to the audience, said, do you really think they never cooked together or had sex together or prayed together or mixed cultures? I said they were living side by side as outliers and as outsiders in Lisbon post-Reconquista. I said, obviously, we have a very long history of engagement between these two diasporas, both inter- intersecting and living side by side. You think at some point someone put piri piri sauce on the gefilte fish? It just had to happen. Well, I mean, <laughs> these are Svadim, so I don't know about the gefilte fish, but <laughs> you know, that's the. I mean, uh, yeah, that kind of thing. That kind of thing is happening all the time. So, but Michael, so hearing you talk, and obviously, I mean, this is this is music to my ears. This is these are things I've I've long believed about how we all have these multiple identities and and how they intersect. Before we were before the term before Kimberly Crenshaw's term intersectionality was in the discourse, you know that that was something certainly those of us who study religion know intuitively, right? Right. To me, that's always an argument for everyone feeling pretty free because we're also intersectional and also polyglot and also you know syncretized. That's kind of an argument for everyone feeling very very liberated to you know to take take what they want from different cultures and live it because we've all always been doing that. Um, but sometimes that's actually not the way it plays out, right? I mean, sometimes what you right. have is a policing, what I take to be a policing of boundaries where people say, well, because you're more identified with this culture than that, you have to be careful, you know, should you cook that or should you sing that way? And I mean, how, how do we theorize this? How do we work that out so that um, the appropriation uh, guardians or police are, you know, not, not attacking us for being intersectional? Well, I think this this gets very thorny, and with American Jews, this gets very, very, very thorny. And I'll and I'll tell you the distinction that I make. In healthy multicultural situations, diffusion is not only um, present but possible and necessary. And in unhealthy multicultural situations, <laughs> where there is an imbalance of power and systemic forms of oppression are imminent and surrounding one, then we're talking about appropriation. And we're talking about borderline, I call it borderline appropriation. Um, 
And I think those two things are, are should be kept very distinct and very separate. I think the mistake that a lot of people in common discourse make is that they confuse diffusion with appropriation. And so I used to get really stupid hate mail going, I guess I should give back... Um, you know, rocks because, you know, somebody in ancient Stone Age Africa used a rock to make a tool. And I'm like, you're a real idiot. That's not what we're talking about here. And you damn well know it. You know, we have a history in America of of crossover music. Crossover music originally did not mean just white people playing black music. It meant white people playing black music and then getting all the credit for it. And then black performers got to die in poverty and obscurity right. even though they created the most pop that created those popular songs and probably and did them in a more authentic way so we, when we come back to food what we're saying to people is when it comes to you know the business side when it comes to trying to set up brick and mortar buildings and you're at a disadvantage because you are of color and money doesn't get money didn't get passed down to you because of various forms of oppression enslavement etc jim crow etc and you have the same, you have this idea that's originating in your community. Well, I always tell people, people have the right to um, own and protect their cultural production. Um, let me give you, let me let me go back to the Jewish side because people can understand what I'm talking about. Who was it? Um, what, what, which one was the, which one of the the um, uh, companies was doing like the Talit, like shape scarf? Oh. Oh, was that like H&M or something? Yeah. Everyone's always doing yeah. that, right? Yeah. And it was, and and I was like, nah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Nope, 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 and and people are like, well, wait, wait a minute, but it's but it's but it's wonderful, and it shows it shows flattery, and I'm like, no, it doesn't. In the same way that when people, you know, you have somebody else takes a recipe, for example, you know, I was, you know, when I early on in the, you know, formulating ideas about culinary justice, I was asked by one well-meaning sister, she said to me, well, you know, it's kind of an elitist idea, you know, we don't have food justice, how can you have, which is about access to food and healthy food and um, quality food resources to have culinary justice. And I said, wait a minute. I said, my sister, I said, if you have, if all you have is rice and beans and somebody jacks your rice and beans and turns it into like a mega business and you're still poor, you know, no, you do need some culinary justice. And so I think for people of color, um, you know, food has, people don't understand. People, food has often been used as a means of empowering ourselves, buying our way out of slavery and, and oppression, um, it's uh, been a means of creative expression and maintaining our ties to our heritage. And so uh, I think it's I think it's about a negotiation. I think one of the ways we solve the problem is, number one, we give credit where it's due. Number two, we we share, we share information. We say, okay, this is my, you might say, I'm not in this culture, but I'm I'm inspired by it. I've grown up around it. Mm -hmm. But if you want to eat other form, if you eat the form of the food that inspired me, hey, pay a visit to my friend at this restaurant. Or this place, please read this author. I mean, there are ways to share the table, mm -hmm. right? So that we don't, so that so that we who are oppressed don't have to knock the damn legs off of it. Let's let's name some names. Who do you see out there right now who's not doing culinary justice? Who's who was actually an offender in in that respect? Well, I mean, that's that's putting me on the spot, isn't it? Ah. <laughs> a little but, bit. Uh, you know, I had a, you know, I had a, you know a little bit of a thing about Sean Brock, and I and I have talked to Sean. And you want to tell our, our listeners who he is? Yeah, Sean Brock is Sean Brock is a, uh, a great chef. Uh, he's a you know he's really he's definitely earned every single stripe and um, has done really well for himself in Charleston, Nashville. He's out of Southwest Virginia. He's a really great chef. Um, the problem was he inherited a mess because in the char in the Low Countries, the Southern Low Country, which is you know Carolina, coastal Carolina, and Georgia, you know, the food culture is made <laughs> and created by Black folks. 
Sean has Husk, which is, you know, a gourmet restaurant draws from all kinds of influences. Yeah, that's like the place to go when you're Yeah, the place to go. Person. But I remember a Swedish journalist friend of mine said he went to Husk and there was there was no there were no black people in there. And that but the black culture and the black food was essentially the thrust of the menu and the ideas behind the menu. And he's like wondering, where are these people, even though Charleston is still a very black city? Charleston, for those who don't know, um, was the site of the importation of one quarter of all enslaved Africans brought to what is now the United States. That's about the same as Ellis Island for for European Americans, one quarter. Mm-hmm. So me included, we have I have more than one out of four ancestors who were brought to Charleston. But my beef with the whole issue was not necessarily with him, but I you know I kind of put him in a corner and said, well. If you if, if it's not you, if you really do believe and have empathy for us chefs of color and you are we are your friends and we are working with you, then it, maybe it's time to say to these people who are branding you as this, you know, great white hope of Southern food, no, nah, no, nah, it ain't just about me. And so when he went to Africa, I, they, the, the articles that were written about him were incendiary. Um, and I was the only one of the few black chefs who, no, I was the only, let me get over it. I was the only one who was going to challenge this nonsense and go, wait a minute, you celebrate it when a white chef goes to Africa. But when I try to go to Africa, it's, that's not, that's not interesting. It's only interesting when black chefs do, um, I, I, I hate to put it this way, but ghettoize, ghettoize idea about food, you know, um, or we, you know, play with stereotypes. That's only, or we do some trendy nonsense that people think is cool. But when black folks and well, the majority of our, our chefs now are going back to their heritage, that's the story. The story is not us doing something cool and trendy everybody else can get on to. But when Sean went to Africa, it was like, oh, wow, look what he's doing for Southern food. And one, one article even said he's the first Southern chef to trace Southern food's roots back to Africa. Ooh. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, <laughs> child, bye, child, bye. And the problem with that was not so much him, but I told him, I said, you 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 need to be out there more saying no i'm not the center of this conversation i'm a part of it but i'm not so i said oh, so i'm glad you went to africa and found out that you as a southern white boy have as have many african roots as i do but i but i'm i'm but you know when people would ask me what are you doing differently than what sean brock is doing and I'm a black man, and I'm the descendant of the enslaved, and I'm putting on those enslaved people's clothes and doing living history, and I'm cooking that food, and I'm getting asked stupid questions, and I had to spend <laughs> like my whole life waiting to buy, be able to buy that ticket to go back home, right? And my birthright for Africa came, what, 14, I don't know, 14 years after my birthright to go to Israel? That's why I was upset. And that's why I turned that anger into light, because Southern food is so rich, and it was created in the hands of people, men and women, who had a really diverse and, and skilled palate. So I'm trying to get people off the what they think of as soul food and into a broader, broader concept of where their food comes from. So the book is The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South. That came out in 2017. Tell us something about the next book. Co- Kosher Soul. Folks, this book talks about, Cooking Gene does talk about my Jewish identity and and Jewish journey sprinkled throughout, um, and the, the kosher soul will follow up on that. All three of these, this the, the, I decided to do a trilogy because the idea of people telling me you can't exist, America's not ready for you. This happened quite often, and and also I write about how the food makes us, rather just than just about how we make the food. What's the third book in the trilogy? 
uh, about gay identity and food. My own gay. This is they really made you like oh section Lord. out all yeah. of your oh different identities. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. then, but but you know the thing about it is you you see the hollow braid right? Yeah. All three books have all three telling the story, and so it's like going back and like looking at a different, looking at the same person's life through a different lens and the people, the teachers that I have. It's about me getting wisdom, like Pierre K. Avote says, from all of my teachers, young people, older people, people in contemporary with me. Kosher Soul is going to have more recipes than the cooking gene did um, because I think people expect that, but it's not going to be a cookbook. It's a, it's a food memoir. Um, it's going to be less food history, but there will be food history. Will there be um, a filter fish? There will not. <laughs> Michael, you know, <laughs> baby, you know, you tried it with that one. Okay. Uh, uh, Michael W. Twitty, uh, Aki, Javer, you're going to come back to talk to us again sometime? Bezrat Hashem, inshallah. All of it. Bezrat <laughs> Hashem. All right, Michael Twitty, you Michael, guys can follow Michael so much, at, at Kosher Soul on Twitter, and you can check out his blog, AfroCulinaria.com. And buy the, buy the book. book. Thanks, Michael. Gig is in. Thank you so much. Bye. Guys, I want to triple my salary next year. I want to go from $0 to a big whopping $0. Now, you might ask yourself, if he's tripling his salary from 0 to 0, why do they need a fund drive? The answer is because we want to do more great work. We want to bring you more stuff like the conversion episode or the Yom Kippur apology episode, that Mother's Day episode that we did on infertility. We want to talk Chinese food on our Christmas episode again. We want to make the podcast better than ever. So listen, can you give us $18 to help us do that? Can you give us $1.80? Hey, can you give us $100,000? Look, we have sweet prizes for donors at all levels. We have we have laptop stickers. We have limited edition t-shirts. They await you at tabletmag.com slash donate. Let's do this. Let's make it happen. I need everyone who values this podcast to do your part in that contract that exists in free podcast between the creator and the listener, which is we will give you this product for free and at some point support us voluntarily somehow. Give something. And hey, leave a note when you give. We want to hear what keeps you coming back. Go to tabletmag.com slash donate and give us something. It's going to be a great fourth year for our show. We have a very, very, very special Gentile of the Week returning uh, to the show. <laughs> I mean, really, at this point, is it a Gentile He's of the Week? He's basically really? our Jewish guest. I'm the Shagets of the Week. <laughs> we're here with Simon. I feel like we've converted him by now. Let me introduce him so people know who it is. Um, we're here with Simon Doonan. He is the creative ambassador at large for Barney's, and he is the author of a brand new book. It's called Soccer Style, The Magic and Madness. Thanks for coming back, Simon. Oh, thanks for having me and letting me come on and shill my book. How early was Simon in the... He was our second guest. Our second gentleman. I don't know how we got, like, we, we really peaked very yeah. early. Oh, I don't know how yeah. we got you so, <laughs> so soon. Until now. And we it was were, like we 2015. Like, <laughs> it was a different world. We were a baby podcast back then. And the world was a good place. <laughs> but now here you are, you're back. So soccer. Yeah, yeah so, so your new book is Soccer Style. And I learned a lot both about soccer style and also just about soccer. Um, but I really like the way you sort of, you know, you start out by by breaking down the style tribes of soccer. So you have, you know, the, I forget what you call them, the hired assassins, the label kings, the bohemians. Could you break down like the, a little mm. bit of the, the 
the lexicon of the different different worlds. Or before you even do, are you offended that we call it soccer? No, because when I was a kid, it was we actually called it soccer at school. <sighs> That's the dirty secret of of football in England, and it was called gradually more football culturally, but kids who were playing it at school call it soccer. So, so happy. Yeah. There's the next time some Mark, snooty... Hey, Mark can retire. Le football, das football, yeah. football. Any one of them. I'm like, Why did actually... It, when did it become... It was soccer. I think that it shifted gradually in the 60s and 70s and um, footy football is what it's called now. And uh, so anybody who's sort of laying down the law about language, usually they're on, you know, quicksand, as in this case, because mm. when I was a kid, Young kids playing it at school, we call it soccer. Amazing. But um, the style tribes, darling. So uh, what I found with soccer style is that people tend to say, oh, doesn't he look terrible? You know, look at him. He looks like a right idiot, blah, blah, blah. And I realized that they were just failing to understand that there's actually several different ways to dress if you are a highly paid upscale rambunctious footballer and they do fall into different genres my favorite what i call the psychedelic ninjas and these are rule breakers <laughs> avant-gardists rule breakers who really don't care what other people think and they're they're absolutely great i mean examples include danny alves brazilian neymar yeah. roberto firmino so there's no shortage. To our American of them. listeners, these are famous and very capable athletes. But you've heard of these people, Leo? Oh, absolutely. You not. must have heard of Neymar. Yeah, I, I have. I have. I Ronaldo. Pele. Yeah. Well, Pele. <laughs> Ronaldo. Pele is a good example. <laughs> O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson. Pele is a good President example. President Garfield. Pele is a good example of. Um, good Taste Ambassador. That's a, that's another group. So you've got the Psychedelic Ninjas, you know, like Jibril Sisse, who said, I don't think I've ever gotten home from shopping and thought I couldn't possibly wear this. <laughs> you know, they go for it. And they're fabulously indifferent to, to the online, you know, peanut gallery, which a lot of people are very sensitive to. So they're great. So what do they wear? They wear... Um, Super edgy things, Saint Laurent, Givenchy, Balmain jeans, um, the most outrageous things, all that new Gucci stuff that's completely decorative and mad and embellished, like my shoes. I'm wearing Ooh, Gucci shoes. They're like a little Gucci loafer with a massive, for no reason at all, cat's face oh, I love on that. the front. You are a psychedelic ninja. I'm a psychedelic ninja, so I identify with that group. But I have no problem with the other groups. There's the Good Taste Ambassadors. They're the ones maybe slightly advanced in the career. David Beckham mm -hmm. eventually went into this category. You want to look like you're ready for big boy opportunities when you retire. You're to business. Like a nice suit, Exactly. Right? You're, maybe you have the potential to become a brand. Ooh. So then there's the hired assassins, which is basically wearing a lot of black. This is a large section of footballers. It's like dressing like Jason Statham in right. a crank movie. Yeah. It's sort of tough, um, kind of dirty denims, black hoodie. They work um, as assassins on look, the side. Yeah, you look like a, a hitman. It's a good look for a footballer because they are. you can't really get trolled for that look. Um, people find it sexually attractive, so I'm told. Um <laughs> 
So I have some great pictures of hired assassins. Then we have to gallop through all the different groups. There's the um, the Bohemians and Fohemians. And they are a very small group because the culture of football was very anathema to counterculture, hippie, beatniks. They were sort of were very much against that. And the managers in the 60s were very much against the idea of beards and, you know, having the idea that the team could be infected with alternative ideas was horrifying to the average football manager. Now, though, what you see is in the MLS, for example, the American Soccer League, um, the Portland Timbers, they're quite crunchy. Every time they score a goal, they saw a tree, um, they... Um, have tofu sandwiches at the stadium instead of meat pies, and they're sort of I all, could get they have beards people. and hair. Ah. They look a bit spinal tap, some of them. <laughs> um, so they're they're you know the bohemianism is far hard to find, but it's it's growing. And beards, you know, ten years ago you never saw a beard in the Premier League. Now there's a significant Olivier Giroud. All these people have beards. Okay, Simon, I'm going to interrupt you now. Uh, listening, to, First of all, listening to you talk about this. doesn't count if you say you're going to interrupt is, someone. I'm being polite yeah. as I'm interjecting uh, into this conversation. Listening to you talk uh, is evident that you don't only know a lot about the style of soccer. You know a lot and seem to care a lot about soccer. Tell us, uh, how did you grow up? How did that come to be for you? Interesting story. Um, well... My dad worked night shifts, and um, he was actually not that interested in in soccer, football. Um, But my uncle Ken, who lived with us, he used to take me to the games at the local team, which was Reading FC. And we lived in this town that was dominated by the Biscuit Factory, Huntley and Palmer's. So back then, the Reading team were called the Biscuits. (laughs) So we would shout, up the Biscuits. And I would go, I went with Ken in like the late 50s, early 60s. And then what confirmed my soccer affiliation was um, I failed the 11 plus. Do you know what that is? Mm -hmm. When you're 11, you have to take this exam, which decides whether you go to the grammar school and you play cricket and Mm -hmm. rugby, or you go to the school where they kick you out to become a... You had to become uh, a factory worker. A factory worker at 16. So I failed it and went to that school. And so that's what we... (laughs) <laughs> people did we went to the football game and um this is this would be 62 through 68 and that's when um we were all kicked out so you're a real world. fan yes um you know more of the culture of football um you know when england won the world cup in 1966 that coincided with the swinging 60s the beatles the rise of george best who was called the fifth Beatle, played for Manchester United. So, like, it's all about timing. Um, you know, there's the swinging 60s coinciding with us winning the World Cup was a huge, had a huge impact. And interestingly, my mother, she was one of those people that had a million jobs. You know, you never knew what she was off to. She was always addressing envelopes or rushing off to do this, that, and the other. She literally had three or four jobs. And her Saturday job for quite a long time was sitting at a desk, smoking woodbines and sitting next to a massive Bakelite phone. She was waiting for it to ring on a Saturday afternoon where these people were phoning in the football scores from around the country. And she had to scroll them down so they could be put into the Saturday edition. So, you know, everyone in England has a connection to football. And, you know, if I'd been a girl, I might have married a footballer. I'd be, 
You know, you never know. Boys can do that Instead, now. you married a potter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is not half bad. So interestingly, one quick interjection. Peter Crouch <laughs> is a very beloved footballer. He plays for Stoke. He's very tall. He's married to a super famous wag called Abby Clancy. Also Abby Crouch. Gorgeous. Just had another kid. Um, somebody once said to him, what would you have been if you hadn't been a footballer? And he said... A virgin. Because <laughs> <laughs> footballers, are, they're the hunted. Uh-huh. You know, in English towns, it's like, oh, yeah, look at the local footballers right. in great shape. They're fun. like the doctors of English towns. <laughs> <laughs> like, grow up, marry yourself a footballer. So there's a way in which masculinity changes throughout this book, right? This idea that these 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 men are in amazing physical shape, they do this very aggressive, manly thing, but they dress in almost a flamboyant way and that we've just sort of cha- shifted what we've decided is is acceptable, essentially, right? Like, because wasn't there a point at which you couldn't be a footballer and dress like this? Absolutely. I would say it shifted in the late 90s with Beckham and he wore a sarong, famously a Jean-Paul Gaultier sarong. And he really didn't care what other people thought. And then... 2001, I think it was, he appeared on the cover of Face magazine with his mohawk, great picture of him. And so suddenly footballers were considered to be cool because up to that point, they were thought to be reckless hedonists who, you know, if they were famous, you could use them to advertise beer or crisps or aftershave. But suddenly Beckham anoints, brings together fashion and and soccer in a way that no one had really since George Best. But then it was taken to a whole other level because that was when the rise of the Premier League, the rise of these incredible media deals, the rise of celebrity culture, the rise of fashion. Fashion had be- became a big thing in the 90s. So Beckham coincided with all this and was able to sort of become a figurehead for it. And yes, they could wear more daffy things. And that same thing happened with celebrities. If you think that's the period when Bjork was wearing a dead swan. Now people are a little bit gun shy, most people, because their managers don't let them wear anything too insane. Um, You know, so we, the psychotetic ninjas, we need to revere them. We need to adulate them because it's very hard if you're a celebrity or a prominent person to withstand all this peanut gallery witness Eugenie and Beatrice who showed up wearing their fascinators this time looked like they'd bought them in Eastern Europe in 1980. What are fascinators? Um, Those demented hats that English royals wear. They famously wore very Baroque fascinators. And then, of course, I thought, okay, if you keep saying how ridiculous they looked, wait till you see what they show up with the next time. Here they are looking really turgid and leaving us all very disappointed. Yeah, they were like nothings, those little They looked very nice, but where was those elaborate Philip Treacy sculptures on the head? I mean, really, we should end on your pay into psychedelic ninjas, but we won't because I have a question for you. Since I have a, a genuine English football fan in the room, settle for me a debate I have with my American friends who claim to be into soccer. Every, how often is the World Cup? Three years, four years? Four years. Four years. Every four years when the World Cup comes round, a, a whole bunch of my friends say, this is the time, that this is the, the season that Americans really get into soccer. Like, it's actually going to, you, you watch, like, four years from now, its viewership on TV will be the same as the NFL. And, of course, they point to the fact that it is the most popular Little League sport. And, they keep, and I always say, no, you don't understand. It's not in our blood. It's a 
popular suburban thing to do. We have some good college teams. Once in a while, we throw up a player who's really world class. But it will never. Americans are not soccer players in the. I mean, Brazilians are soccer. It is their lifeblood. Maybe that's the NBA for us or the NFL. But I just don't think it's ever happening. We're never going to care that way. Am I right? Tell me, I'm right. Um, a couple of points for you to consider. Okay. One is Sean Pasilic who plays for Borussia Dortmund, he um, had this vision that America was going to get into the World Cup this time and actually do really well, and they didn't qualify, right. and he sobbed on the pitch. So we could have gotten a little foothold this time. Secondly, women's soccer in America it's dominates. Yeah. And so I think the big opportunity in the short term to completely dominate is women's soccer. Third thing... If you took all the great athletes like LeBron, blah, 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 and put them into soccer teams in the MLS, you would completely but, dominate. But that's the like point. The great, they uh, don't want to yeah. play soccer as little kids. Yeah, I think that's that's part. That's but a hold big on. part We should do it. like a WPA-style project where in the off-season we should mandate LeBron to go play it's, soccer and then people watch it. Essentially, you're right. It's it's a long way from being in the lifeblood. But there's there's a lot of progress there. Like David Beckham's opening this big football soccer stadium in Miami. I think, you know, with him behind it, it could become the Barcelona of the MLS, you know. So baby steps. Baby steps. I'll probably be dead. You'll be dancing <laughs> on my grave. Um, I will not dance on your grave. I will put we'll a, have a stone on your grave. So what do we have to look forward to in the World Cup, both like style, both on the on the field and off? Um well there's immediate sizzle because it's set in Russia. Yeah. And allegedly um, Gareth Southgate, who's the British captain, he told the players they could bring their wags this time, which... Um, wives and girlfriends. Wives and girlfriends. They haven't really been en masse since 2006. I don't know if... 2006 was the big year of the the wag. I don't know if you remember British headlines every day were like reservoir wags and there were pictures of them all walking down the street in a phalanx. Um, it was great. It was like the year that that slipped into common parlance. Um they may show up. I don't know. Um, there's always, there'll be something to fixate on. There's no shortage of charismatic, glamorous, stylish players going to be there. You know, the full range. We've got Harry Kane playing for England, who is very sort of, um, what's that British movie about where they're running? Chariots of Fire. Yes, yes. he's very Chariots of Fire, classic English, Ralph Lauren-y, his personal style. Then you've got the Brazilians, Neymar, Alves, Riyad Mahrez from Tunisia, bleach blonde hair, great looking. Um, there's so many players. If you are looking for style, they're going to be all over those pitches. Unfortunately, Italy didn't qualify, which is... You know, that's a big... Big loss to big the style. Big loss to the style yeah. addicts. But Spain, Alvaro Morata, who plays for Chelsea, so good looking. He's a actually good taste ambassador, even though he's young. Um, and yes, Spain, lots of hired assassins too. Are Mark, you going to be rooting for the, for the home team? Um, I guess through doing this project, I've become relentlessly agnostic. And in fact, I read somewhere that... Chinese fans, you know, it's a very big burgeoning sport in China. They tend to follow multiple teams and they follow multiple players. So I, I guess I'm more like a, a Chinese fan at you the have, moment. You have become, as we do say, a rootless cosmopolitan. Um, Simon, I have never enjoyed an interview so much and understood so little. Uh, the book is Soccer Style, The Magic and Madness. The Gentile barely is Simon Doonan, Shimon Doonan. Thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. Oh, mon plaisir. <laughs> 
Thank not you. plaisir. Au contraire, not plaisir. <laughs> To the mailbox, we got some excellent letters in response to our interview last week with Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, the first Orthodox clergy person to serve at Beth Simchat Torah, the queer congregation in Manhattan, or queer-friendly, queer-allied congregation in Manhattan. In response to our interview with Rabbi Mike, we got first this letter. Hey, J. Crew, I can't not respond to that interview, specifically the rabbi's argument that orthodox gender norms are affirming. I am a Jewish trans man, and he's flat out wrong. In some ways, yes, it is affirming when I enter an orthodox space and I'm unquestioned sitting in the men's section. But that's where it stops. As an openly trans man, even in the most progressive ortho shul in my area, I am not allowed to take an aliyah, chant Torah, or do any of the responsibilities a man would normally do because... They do not consider me to be a man, or at least are unwilling to do so publicly. How exactly is that affirming of my gender identity? As for his argument that being egal somehow removes that affirmation, I find that lacking. My conservative rabbi has been the most affirming person I have ever met. In conservative spaces, my roles are not defined based on my gender, and I am fully recognized in my gender. Sitting on the men's side of the mechitza with all of the limitations that go with it will never be as affirming as an egalitarian space. I hope in the future Unorthodox finds time to center trans voices because there's some amazing trans Jews out there who can speak to our experience better than Rabbi Mike Moskowitz ever will. Thank you for reading, Michael Faccini. Well, thank you, Michael. Thanks for writing. We have another letter on the same topic. Dear Stephanie, Mark, and Liel, I really appreciated last week's discussion on the place of trans Jews and the place of the distinct gender divide within Judaism. As a prospective convert to the reform movement, I struggle with its lack of distinct gender boundaries. Recently, I even struggled with my congregation's rabbinic intern over this very topic. I think women should light the Shabbat candles. He thinks all genders are welcome to take part and make it joyous. I see his point of view. But I think Judaism is full of boundaries that make it beautiful, even the gendered ones. And they help me thrive and feel secure in my tender masculinity. They distinguish my masculinity from my foggy, in-the-closet femininity. I may not agree on all gender divisions of more orthodox Judaism, but the boundaries, the divides of Shabbat from the weak, Jew from Gentile, male from female, they're a comfort, a reassurance in my particularly complicated situation. And that is truly beautiful. Name withheld. Listen, we would love to get your feedback. Write to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail at 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-Israel-Woodstock. You can also leave a review for us on iTunes. Maybe you'll give us five stars. Maybe you won't. But, you know, review us. Finally, another way to help us, we're doing our regular Ask Unorthodox column. Send us your questions. Ask about etiquette. Ask about how to quash family beefs. Ask wisdom on Judaism, wisdom on other things, which camp to send your kid to, which day school to send your kid to, anything you want. We'll take some of the questions for the podcast, and some will go on our column that runs Thursdays or Fridays at tabletmag.com. And a final way to hang with us, and this is literally hanging with us, July 18th at JCC Manhattan. It's the Unorthodox Live Show. We will be screening our new documentary, Can I Say Jap?, about the Jewish-American princess stereotype. Our panel will include special guest Jill Kargman of the TV show Odd Mom Out. It will include Stephanie Butnick. It will include Judith Rosenbaum from the Jewish Women's Archive. It is going to be major. Tickets are at jccmanhattan.org. It is going to be the best live show we've ever done. It's going to be a big town hall event. We're going to take all your points of view, pass the open mic around, and then make a beautiful episode out of it. Join us July 18th. JCC Manhattan, 7.30 p.m. Go to jccmanhattan.org. 
Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. So guys, one of our all-time favorite unorthodox guests has been Molly Ye. She came on the show back when her cookbook slash memoir, um, Molly on the Range, came out. And now she has her own show on the Food Network. And it's going to be amazing. It's called Girl Meets Farm. And we actually called up Molly to just check in with her on the eve of her TV stardom. Hi, Molly. Hi. And J. Crew. everybody needs to watch so that we can go to season two so that... The unorthodox crew can come over for an episode. Oh my god! <laughs> Six seasons and a movie, I think. And a, mo- a movie. Oh my gosh! Before we go any further, Molly, where are you now? Describe the scene because I'm imagining like a bucolic, all exposed, reclaimed wood kitchen overlooking, you know, a beautiful farm with three horses. What are you, What are you looking at right now? Well, um, I'm looking at my computer right now, <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> but it's on a table that my husband felt is kind of rusty, and it's overlooking some beautiful farm fields that are all green because spring planting ended recently. Um, so the fields are great. We have our chickens roaming about and our cats, my favorite cat, that cat is, he's walking around somewhere. And uh, um, and I have a green juice on my desk, and, and that's that's what I'm looking at. Molly, we want your life, and we'll be able to see it, right? Like, what? Tell us a little bit about what Girl Meets Farm is. Yeah, so Girl Meets Farm it takes place mostly in the kitchen, but we do go out around the farm. You'll see my chickens, my cats, and my husband, who will be working on the farm a little bit. And the recipes are all either inspired by the farm or inspired by my. Chinese and Jewishness. So there's a little bit of everything. There's hot dish and cookie salad and rhubarb from the farm. And then there's also going to be an entire episode with challah and hummus and salad that we eat in a field. So you posted something on Facebook the other day that made me, usually, you know, you just look at stuff on Facebook and you just scroll down and you pay no attention. You posted something 
that made me kind of stop and and really reevaluate my life and my priorities. It was a very special oh, yeah. recipe featuring a very special uh, iconic Israeli snack. <gasps> Do you want to tell us what it was and how oh, amazing it was? The same thing happened to me. I was scrolling through Instagram and I stopped dead in my tracks and I was like, oh my goodness, this is genius. It is basically Rice Krispie Treats made with Bamba instead of Rice Krispie Treats. Oh, that is and incredible. I can't take credit for it. it I found it on Instagram um, and it's when I saw it, I was like, why has nobody done this before? This is the most brilliant thing ever. And so I actually went directly to the town super target to get Bamba. And for the first time in the five years that I've lived here, the target was sold out of Bamba. So I couldn't make it. By the way, what, what, what town is the target in? Grand Forks, North Dakota. So the Grand Forks, North Dakota target ran out of Bamba. They've cornered the market. Welcome to 2018, everyone. (laughs) So Molly, your family appears in some of the episodes. And doesn't your mom come? Does she help you make the challah? Yes. No, she helps me make her special brisket. And and then we we make tacos out of it and eat it around the bonfire. It's so much fun. And then we, uh, so she does this thing. She started doing this thing with her brisket recently where she adds an entire orange juice into the braising liquid and it's sour and sweet, completely addictive. It is so good. And, you know, it's, it's pretty much a standard braised brisket, but this bit of orange juice in the mixture just takes it over the edge. So we make that and, uh, and then just make kind of like a whole bonfire feast. And it's, it's really good. What's your favorite episode? Uh, well, at one point, Nick sold the donut board. <laughs> we threw a baby shower for my sister-in-law, and he made this donut display board. And In real life, he actually built it to be a bagel display board. Um, but for the show, it gets turned into a donut display board, and then we make pretty colored, naturally colored glazes with rhubarb and berries, and, and then throw some sprinkles on them. So those are a lot of fun. And then, um, and then, well, the first episode that we're actually making shakshuka, and that I was really excited to make. That traditional network. North North Dakota <laughs> breakfast treat. <laughs> yeah, and I'd like to go out to the to the coop to to look for some eggs for it, but doesn't go as planned. So you'll have to wait to find out what happens. So was there a recipe that like almost made the cut but didn't? Uh, Hala pizzas. I was so excited about them because. We were originally for the Hala episode going to do a few different variations of Hala, like um, my scallion pancake Hala, which is kind of a Chinese oh my Jewish God. thing in a bread. Uh, and then I, I, I think we were going to do maybe something sweet with it. Like I like frying Hala into donuts. When I make soup on my own, I use my Hala dough. Um, and one of the recipes that we were going to make was the little pizza using Hala dough with some greens and lemon and, and feta and all that fun stuff. And so um, we didn't end up doing it. We ended up doing a different kind of challah, but I was so into the idea of making a pizza with it that I ended up making it anyway and taking a few pictures of it to put on my blog. So that'll be kind of, there will be like companion content on my blog while the show is going on. Would we be able to binge on that show or is it one of those wait another week for another installment situation? Because I don't I, think I'm going to uh, be able to wait another week. I think it's kind of an old school cable wait a week. 
and you know you can only watch it over the seven weeks that it's showing but um I don't actually know I don't even know how I'm gonna watch the premiere because I'm not gonna I'm gonna be at my friend's bachelor party in Amsterdam so I'm gonna have to figure out a way to stream it too Molly this sounds incredible I'm like I'm starving I'm hungry I'm like emotional <laughs> I'm so excited for you oh well I hope you guys can come make it out to the farm and we can cook together and you know hopefully to, fingers crossed for a season two you guys can come and cook everyone who is listening to this show stop watching Fauda it's a waste of your time it just stresses you out go go watch Girl Meets Farm Girl Meets Farm it premieres on the Food Network on Sunday, June twenty fourth, this Sunday, and you just watch it so that yeah, we need a we need a second season. We need we need to make our big break. Molly, we are so proud of you. Oh, please. I love you guys. I miss you. I know we miss you too, and we wish you the best of luck. And we're so excited for your TV debut. Yay! Thanks so much. Yay! Thank you guys. Oh, Molly D. Ask your mother if you, my bride, can ever be. If she says no, come back and tell me. Then never more will I trouble thee. I hope Molly knows I will be stealing Food Network to watch her show. Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov this week? We record on Tuesdays. Today is the first day of camp at the JCC in Manhattan. And so the mazel tov has to go out uh, to the the mother of dragons, Jenna Singer, uh, for, for riding the storm and creating the best camp on earth that I wish I could join at 41 if it wasn't created. <laughs> a little bit. But instead you give them your children. Stephanie. My mazel tov is to my mother-in-law, Wendy Cohen. She knows what she did. <laughs> and that's all I'll say. Um, Wendy, you know you know what you did. You know what you did, Wendy. Uh, my mazel tov is to Evan and Shauna, our super listeners, who invited us to their wedding, which was um, which was Sunday. And I just want to say thank you for inviting us. It has lived on my Google Calendar, or I, I've just learned they say GCal. Anyway, your your wedding, Evan and Shauna, has lived on my GCal since you invited us. I was really hoping to make it. I didn't RSVP, but I was going to crash it if need be. I figured you'd save some cake for me. It didn't happen because Rebecca had a soccer tournament, but I was going to drive up there Sunday. I was really hoping to. We so would have loved uh, to be there. Mazel tov on your wedding. We wish you... Um, we will join the honeymoon. We will. Yeah, right. <laughs> hey! Send us a postcard. Um, and we are so... We've been invited to three or four simchas of our listeners, and we're going to make it to one one of these Here's days. Here's the thing. Our listeners should really know we have no boundaries. That's we right. We really yeah. don't. That's right. We, we, we are absolutely the excited. Part- to part come of to the You're part of the mishpucha, and uh, but this is this is your this is this is your week. This is your life, Evan and Shauna. Um, invite us to the We we look forward to an invitation to a simchat bat or a brit milah at some point in the future, God willing. I like the way you say those things. Don't you like the way a I said simchat bat or a brit milah? And on a sadder note, our friend and colleague and erstwhile guest, Sarah Pulliam Bailey, uh, had some very sad family news that she shared on Twitter this week. Uh, for those of you who are interested, you can. she's been very public about it. We just want to send a shout out uh, with lots of love uh, to you and your family and uh, know that, that we and uh, I know thousands of our listeners who, who were very moved by your appearance on our show are all thinking of you in this time. 
Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Shira Talushkin. It's edited by Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Wardiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. They do gigs. You should hire them. We often come to you live. To book us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. Hit up bit.ly slash unorthoshirt to find the latest in shirts, mugs, and stickers, as well as those little cozies you can put around your coffee. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpod and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnik. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi David Thomas and Rabbi Josh Brindle of Congregation Beth El of the Sudbury River Valley in Sudbury, Massachusetts for all of your Jewish needs in Sudbury. Indeed, I would say greater Sudbury. If you think your rabbi should be selected to offer rabbinic supervision, write to me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. We recorded Argo Studios, which just defeated Germany in the World Cup, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends.